Good morning. Good morning. Uh, most of you are already doing this, uh, but if you could find a seat. My, sorry for being so quick. Okay. If you could find a seat. Um, we're in Acts chapter 19, and today we're in verses 21 through 41. Interesting story as Luke continues walking us through the, uh, the very first account of the early church. Um, this story transitions into a, an example of something that's happening quite frequently in the time. Uh, we as Christians have this sort of marching order that, that we're different than other people. And the, those of us that have been homeschooled, we are already different. Than, I'm just kidding. That's just a cheap joke. I'm sorry. Um, no, we are, we are different than other people. But the, the thing that I find in this story is that they weren't trying to be different than other people. They were in the sense of like they're not trying to cause an uproar or an uprising. They just through their actions of following Christ end up coming out differently than everyone else. Uh, If you could turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 19 verse 21. Let's spend some time there this morning. Now after these events Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So this is pretty much what we get of Paul in this story. Uh, We get a little snippet a little bit later on, but a fun part about this story is that there's not really any major characters or players from the rest of the book of Acts. Uh, We have a, a few little hints in the beginning, and then in the middle of the story we have Paul trying to speak, but this is pretty much it. Now, it's, it's worth noting, Paul just mentioned some things, and, and let me just unpack that for us a little bit. It's worth noting that this is the end of Paul's missionary journey. This is it. Uh, and so if this is Lord of the Rings, he and Bilbo are sailing off. Um, but Paul, Paul is done here. And what he ends up doing is, is worth noting because he goes back through Macedonia and Achaia. He's, doing, um, he's revisiting churches he's planted. He's, he's seeing these places that that he has poured into. And we know that he's even going to come back to Ephesus at a later time. Uh, I think the very next chapter, he's going to be back in Ephesus. Uh, But he's just encouraging and strengthening those churches through the Spirit and doing exactly what the Lord has asked him to do. I thought that the phrase was interesting, that he says, having resolved in the Spirit, uh, as I was dialoguing about this passage this week, I thought, um, is this just like an overly spiritual way of saying this. Like if one of your friends came to you and said, I've resolved in the spirit today uh, to go to Chick-fil-A. Now, if it's Sunday, you probably haven't. Um, But if it's another day, you'd probably think, gee, that's a bit over-spiritualizing it for Chick-fil-A. Now, it seems like Paul's not actually doing that. Like what he has decided and what he's saying, and we've seen this through through the intensity of some of Paul's travels recently, um, that his resolve in the spirit means that he's feeling directed by God to go and do these things, to go back to Macedonia and Achaia and then to Jerusalem. And then he says that he must see Rome. And Paul is a little bit prophetic in this because he will see Rome. He will. And we'll see that to spoil it in the end of this book, that Paul will head to Rome one last time. This uh, whole section can be summarized by this sentence at the top of your worship folder notes, the way causes inadvertent disturbance and life-changing consequences down to the business of people who profit off of false worship. 
Paul has, has strengthened and encouraged churches and planted them in such a profound way that they are having effects on the economy of these cities. That's how hardcore these believers are following Jesus, that they are not following him with their words and their hearts are far from him. No, their hearts and their words are matching up. Their actions are detracting from the very economic foundations of their cities. We'll get to that in a second here. Verse 22, And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now the word helpers there in the Greek is actually the word for assistance. But I think that helpers, what, what the ESV translators did for us is really helpful. The word helpers actually uh, is what their office is. They are helping people. When we see the word assistant, we might think that's a fill-in for them while they're not there. Like an assistant coach would just step into the role of coach if the coach gets kicked out of the game. These are helpers. They are people who go and do things to prepare and to help Paul's ministry. He names two people. He names Timothy. And Timothy should be a little bit famous for us, a little bit popular for us to remember, because he has two books that have been written to him, First and Second Timothy. Uh, and then we have the other name, Erastus, here. And if you're a historical nerd, you know that Erastus was actually uh, from the city of Corinth. Very good. It's from the city of Corinth. We actually found uh, plaques that archaeologists dug up that have Erastus's name. He actually donated some of the uh, pavement for a city street because part of his role in that city was an official uh, in the city of Corinth. Erastus was very well off. Um, he didn't really have need to do anything else. He, I mean, he had all this money coming in from his uh, government job and his work, and he had no need to do anything different except the Lord got a hold of him. And Erastus came to Christ, and he dropped everything for the sake of following Jesus. He went with Paul. Um, Erastus probably at an age now where he should be retired. Um, as John Piper famously said, uh, collecting seashells. But he's not collecting seashells. He's following Jesus fully and completely with his life, doing work alongside Timothy here. They stayed, uh, Paul himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, what are these helpers going and doing? It seems like they're just preparing the churches for Paul's arrival. They're going to Macedonia. They're going to these areas, and they're saying, look, Paul's going to come. Here's what we need to do. Um, here's, here's what should be ready. And then when Paul comes, he sort of gets this uh, preparation briefing on what's been going on in those areas. So these helpers have gone ahead. Uh, it could be that they're providing funds. We know that Paul collects funds from different churches. They're, they're giving any help that these places need, and so fulfilling that very role of helper. Verse 23, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Sort of the backstory before what's about to happen in this movie, that the followers of Christ are so radically committed that, again, it's shaking the very economic foundation of these cities. just want us to enter into that this morning, that the radical following of Christ sacrificing everything they once knew, sacrificing their very culture for the sake of following Jesus. We know that this phrase, the way, has been used a couple other times in Acts. In Acts chapter 5 it was first used. We also saw it in Acts chapter 7. Uh, the way is a term that's just referred to those who follow Jesus. Jesus said, I am the 
way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when the early followers of him were following him, they would refer to themselves as the way. We follow the way. And the way is Jesus. Um, so there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. People were bothered by followers of Christ. As I always like to say, not because they were jerks, but because they were so faithfully committed to Jesus that they counted everything else as loss. Erastus is a good example of that, but here we're going to continue and see what did they mean by that, specifically in the city of Ephesus. Now, let's use this phrase, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, as this overarching theme for this is happening not just in Ephesus, but all over Asia Minor all over where Paul has planted these churches, where the Spirit's been working, where Apollos has been preaching the gospel, where Priscilla and Aquila have been furthering the kingdom. This is happening everywhere. And what we're going to get from Luke um, is a little example of what's happening specifically in Ephesus. I was telling the elders, I really appreciate Luke because I think that Luke is a good historian. And I think that Luke loves to do history and loves to give accounts of things. And that's going to come out right here in chapter 19. This is sort of Luke's fun time to give this account of an example of this disturbance that arose concerning the way. A good connection piece for you just to plug this into some categories. Um, In the Old Testament, the book of Judges happens um, shortly before uh, the people of Israel ask for a king. Uh, The book of Judges happens and they have these little intermittent rulers. Um, And then we get, after the book of Judges, the book of Ruth, which is an example of a story that happened during the time of the Judges. So this is an example of how people lived during the time of the Judges. Of course, Ruth plays a major role in the rest of the biblical narrative because of her lineage. Um, Let's think of this story that we're about to see in Acts as the Ruth of There Arose No Little Disturbance Concerning the Way. So this is our overarching narrative And then we're going to plug into that, hey, here's an example of what happened. But I don't want us to think this is the only thing that happened, or nothing else arose like this, but this is something that seems to be happening frequently. Um, And it's it's really upsetting the people. I love their logic in this. So we're going to to pick this apart for you this morning. Um, Let's see, what exactly happened? Verse 24. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So we have no little disturbance and no little business. So here we go. Demetrius, a little bit of backstory on him. He's, as Luke describes, a silversmith. His primary job is to make these little idols of Artemis. Um, And he brought a lot of business to the other craftsmen who would add things or make different ones or if they didn't want a silver one he could send them to someone cheaper who could do one out of wood or out of iron um demetrius was doing this what he thought a noble job because for artemis her glory was shown through the many idols that would show up the more idols the better the more that people are buying the better so that way everyone knows who artemis is And that's part of this myth of how she receives her glory and how she's glorified through the people. So he made these silver shrines of Artemis. He gathers together these craftsmen with the workmen in similar trades. And he says, men, 
you know that from this business we have our wealth. Demetrius says, we're rich. Right, guys? We've made so much money from this business. We've, we've gained financially. And you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here, number two, you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. The nerve of this guy. Um, this almost reads like satire at points, because we know the truth and we know what exactly is um, right and good, and we know how ridiculous it is that gods made with hands are worshipped. Um, they don't see it like that. So we have to try to enter into and maybe sympathize a little bit with these basic foundations. Hey, their wealth is is being taken away. Um, They believe that Artemis is the one we should truly be worshiping. Paul has persuaded almost all of Asia and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. So they get their wealth from this, but now Paul's turning people away, and he's saying these things are not God's. And there is danger not only in that this trait of ours may come into disrepute, but also the temple of our great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. They're going to lose their business, but not only that, the very foundation of why people would even come to Ephesus in the first place is going to be ripped out. People aren't going to want to come to Ephesus to worship Artemis because they're going to think gods made with hands aren't real gods. And there is danger, verse 27, not only that this trait of ours may come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. Seems to be a bit overstated. In fact, historical records would confirm that. It's a bit overstated here. What is Demetrius most concerned about? His wallet. His wallet is being affected. Uh, In fact, that seems to be the foundation for most people's concerns throughout world history, that when their wallet is affected, their hearts are stirred up. How dare they do this? Um, If you don't believe me, there are some political signs around right now. Most of them talk about taxes and inflation. When your wallet is disturbed, it affects your heart. Um, Yeah, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I I think someone really important in our Bible said that. Um, So Demetrius paints this picture. Look, our wealth is being affected by this. People aren't going to be buying these gods because they're going to say gods made with hands aren't real gods. Paul's persuaded all of Asia to turn away uh, from following Artemis. And uh, people aren't going to want to come to Ephesus. So even if you're not in the business of making these Artemis shrines, people aren't going to come here for tourism. People aren't going to come to see the temple, or as we're going to find out, the great rock that fell from the sky. Um, People aren't going to come to worship that. And so Demetrius lays this problem out and says, look, um, this is code red. We are in serious trouble. If we don't do something about this, Uh, The future is very bleak for us. Point number one in your notes. Christians have so upset the way um, the status quo 
simply by following the Lord Jesus. Take out the way there. Um, Christians have so upset the status quo by following the Lord Jesus. Uh, everything was running fine in this city, according to Demetrius. Everything was okay. Um, and then Paul came around. And Paul was teaching uh, not only Christian theology, that gods made with hands aren't real gods, but he was even using Jewish theology, which is important for us to put in the back of our brains for a second, saying, hey, when you create a god with your hands, uh, it's not a real god. Prophets said, which side of the wood do you worship when you make one of it a god and you use the other one for for fire? How do you know which one you threw into the fire? Um, that's important that Christians and Jews agree on this. Verse 28. Um, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. They rushed together in the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. People who were familiar with Paul, who traveled with him, maybe they can give this defense for him. Um, but they are all rushing to the theater, and so many people are coming in. We're going to find out in a second. Some of them don't know why they're there. Uh, some of them just rushed in, and they thought, oh, there's a crowd. Let's all join in. Verse 30. When Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Um, now, are we talking about uh, the other 10 or 11, if we count Matthias? Are they there saying they're not going to let Paul into the theater? No. Let's uh, use this word in context. What disciples would mean here are the Christians in Ephesus. Those following Jesus in Ephesus are saying, Paul, don't come into the theater. And we're going to find out that there's even more than that. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, Asiarchs are not a term that we're familiar with, so let me unpack this for us a little bit. These would be uh, city officials, um, people who would run the meetings. Let, let's think of them as the deacons of Ephesus, um, without the spiritual term, just in function. They're trying to uh, manage the property, manage the area, keep everything running smoothly. They're, they're the ones that would um, introduce motions to the floor if there was a meeting. Um, they would be the ones who would give arguments and defenses for people. Uh, they would sort of run the business meeting of Ephesus. Um, so these people, some of them ended up becoming followers of Jesus. They were followers of the way, and these people saw Paul and said, please don't come in, please don't come in. Uh, it's going to create so much havoc and so much difficulty for us. If you come in, uh, we're not going to be able to stop this thing. And, and some of them seem to be concerned enough for his life. Uh, it seems like it's that level of concern. Paul, if you come into this theater, if you jump into this place right now, uh, we're not sure we're going to be able to get you out. You just imagine there's just a roar in this theater. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And this doesn't really stop for a while. 
Verse 32, now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Um, People were essentially, I'm angry, and I don't know why I'm angry, but we are angry together. Right, everyone? And they're all unified in their anger and frustration, and in their chanting, um, they just want to be angry. Uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of modern parallels to that. But um, the point is, in Ephesus, there is a great crowd that is so angry and so bitter toward, they don't know what, but they wanted to come together to support Artemis and the whole town of Ephesus. Some of them are so eager to be and to help, and they don't know why they're there. So just imagine there's a crowd rushing toward the theater, and this whole crowd's coming, and people are like peeking their heads out their shops and thinking, where is this crowd going? Let me join them and see. And some of them are just joining in and being pulled alongside as this crowd rushes into the theater. That one man stirred all this up, Demetrius. Now, their concern was really based on the foundation that Paul was pulling people away from worship of Artemis, saying that gods made with hands aren't real gods. The nerve of that guy. Um, Christians who fall away uh, are both Jew and Gentile. But their disdain for anybody... Uh, watered down and boiled down to even the Jews. So point number two in your note, people in Ephesus have become so upset that they want nothing to do with anyone who is Jewish. Verse 33. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But they recognized that he was a Jew, so, for about two hours, they cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Just two hours, this roaring theater over and over. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It's not ending. It's not stopping. Some people still don't quite know why they're there, and they're just chanting this in this theater. Now, it is worth noting that many of your Bibles will label this section a riot in Ephesus. Um, Luke did not label it that. In fact, we're going to see by the end of the story, this isn't even a riot. Um, it's, it's a disturbance. Um, it's troubling. It would be eerie to be there and hear this just chant over and over again, but it's not a riot. Um, they have peacefully protested up to this point. Verse 35, the riot dies down, point number three in your notes, and the way continues to have an impact on Ephesus. The riot dies down, and the way continues to have an impact on Ephesus. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus... Who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Uh, the, 
the city of Ephesus is the keeper of Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Again, this does read like satire, but for them, this was very real. What is a sacred stone that falls from the sky? Probably a meteorite, and then they built around it. Um, I was thinking recently how um, in ancient times, so many people would worship the sun or the moon because they didn't understand it. Uh, they'd worship stars because they, they'd show up, and they didn't really have an explanation for it. Weather impacts were attributed to gods. We see that even in the story of Jonah. Uh, and so they didn't really have explanations, so they would assign things to it. Uh, and so this happens even with a meteorite here. A meteorite falls from the sky. We just think, cool space rock. They think, oh my goodness, a god has sent this to us, and they would build a temple around it. Um, we nowadays would think that's ridiculous, but really because we have explanation for it. Um, we're not going to go worship the meteorite that fell from the sky because we can figure out where it came from. They couldn't. They think this place is so special that Artemis sent a, a, a rock that fell from the sky, and so this must be a place. It's undeniable the evidence that they have for worshiping Artemis in Ephesus. So the town clerk is saying, look, guys, we're not at risk of people not worshiping Artemis. This is a bit far-fetched. Seeing that these things cannot be denied, he says, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. Guys, calm down, okay? People aren't going to stop worshiping Artemis. People aren't going to stop coming to Ephesus. This is the only place where they have a temple with a space rock. Um, nobody's going to stop following the God. Verse 37. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Essentially, look, we're all on the same page. You're preaching to the choir here. Why did you come into a theater and chant Greatest Artemis of the Ephesians when nobody's even countering you? If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring the charges against one another. There is a way to do this, the town clerk says, that doesn't require us chanting in a theater. Uh, things are getting out of hand and aren't looking good for the Ephesians here. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today. And since there is no cause that we can give to justify the commotion. But he had said these things. He dismissed the assembly. And I'm sure for some of the confused people who were there, who didn't know why they were there, this is a relief. That they get to go back to their shops and their homes peacefully. So, this whole story happens under the guise of there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Uh, followers of Christ are so radically committed to him that they are shaking the very economic foundations of this city of Ephesus to the point where they have to go to a theater and have this conversation about it as a city. Uh, all the businessmen seem to be irritated. Here is an, uh, something worth noting. I just find it interesting and it's just a fun archaeological fact about this. Um, there has been digs in Ephesus, archaeological digs, and they have found evidence that people worshipped Artemis in Ephesus. 
not shocking to us, right? Um, they have found false gods. They have found false gods made of tin and wood. And they have not found false gods made of silver, which was Demetrius's complaint. So maybe Demetrius's complaint had some validity to it because he went out of business. Worth considering. The, the assembly was dismissed. The people got to go back to their homes. Nothing changed in way of resolutions concerning Christians. We don't really see much change until Pliny the Younger, um, a few decades later, uh, says that he has a plan to get rid of the Christians. We don't really know much of what comes of that plan, other than that he wrote that in a letter. Um, Christians seem to have such an impact lasting in Ephesus. Uh, we know that this is, place is so special that, that Paul um, invests a lot of his time here. In fact, the most that he spends in any place is in Ephesus. Um, we know that he sends um, a young man named Timothy to be a pastor there. We know that he creates such deep relationships that pretty soon here in Acts we're going to see Paul just cut to the heart because he knows he's going to be his last time he sees the Ephesian elders. This city has been so impacted by a follower of Christ that people have radically given up their lives, everything they used to do in their old way of life without question, just to follow Jesus. Let me walk through with you a few points in application. Follow the Lord in such a radical way that it impacts everything. Follow the Lord in such a radical way that it impacts everything. Uh, I love about this story that we don't have a lot of instruction from Paul to ditch their false idols or their false gods. We sort of have just the action of the people. Um, and I don't think that the people were being malicious about this. They just they weren't going to go worship Artemis. They weren't going to have their false gods. They're desire to be so focused on Christ meant these things didn't matter to them anymore. Um, there are things that Christians do today that should impact businesses. We, we should be so following Christ um, that places go out of business. Um, that the porn industry doesn't have a leg to stand on anymore. That's how Christians should be. Uh, we should be putting an end to things like sex trafficking. And Christians are. Um, making advancements so radically in the way of protecting the unborn women that places that would support the opposite can't survive anymore. I'm not going to bemoan the fact that these places exist because when I read in Scripture, I understand that the world is going to get worse. And I know that, and you know that. But my desire is that the church be the church. That we as followers of Christ would pursue the Lord so fully that some places can't exist anymore. That things like divorce, porn, um, 
are so minimized when it comes to an impact on the church that they have to reconsider their business strategy. We should be following the Lord in such a way that it impacts radically everything we do. We should not be trying to look and sound like the world. We should be the very opposite. For the Ephesian Christians, by Luke's account, it seems that they just did this as second nature. They were just following the Lord. They weren't trying to hurt Demetrius's wallet. They just didn't have a, a taste for false worship anymore. Uh, number two, are those who don't know Jesus drawn in because of our lifestyles? Are those who don't know Jesus drawn in because of our lifestyles? Uh, it seems like in this story, in Acts 19, what ended up happening was so many people came to Christ. So, in Ephesus, their culture revolved around Artemis. Everything they did revolved around Artemis. They had a temple. They had tourism. They had Some of their main business was just making false idols. And the Christians radically followed Jesus... And so their lifestyle attracted more and more and more Christians to the point where their businesses are hurt, their tourism they believe is going to be hurt. People came to Christ, and not just the, the ones who were looking for something new. People left their old way of life to follow Jesus. Sometimes I think a danger of ours is that we can hang on to cultural things as primary. Um, We can hang on to cultural things as primary, and I think we need to consider everything in our lives as, are we bowing the knee to Christ first? Is our submission and priority Jesus? Or is it something secondary that our culture has taught us should be primary? We, were, um, we had the privilege of being in Israel uh, a few weeks ago, a month ago, I guess. Um, and one of the things that stuck out to me as we were there is there's so much desire and vigor for people who live in Israel to just hang on to their Jewish roots and that culture. And I think that that, in many ways, is beautiful and great. Um, and as you walk through places and you find archaeological evidence of places Jesus has been and you're standing there, sometimes I think, I wish that more of the Jewish people would come to Christ. Because it's pretty hard to deny when you're there. Where Jesus walked, the ministry that he did. I mean, the things that they've dug up and found are only scratching the surface, surface so far. And I worry that one of the things holding on is this tie to a culture. Um, that my parents were Jewish in, in the sense that they worshipped the God only of the Old Testament and didn't believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. And so I need to hang on to that as well, and I need to pursue that as well. And if I ever divert from that, that's not going to be good for the future of the Jewish culture or the Jewish people. Um, we have a lot more examples of this. We, we have um, people who are Catholic culturally because 
that's where they came from. It's tied to their culture. They can't give up their Catholicism. And that's heartbreaking to see just such a tie to cultural traditions. Um, we have people uh, in this country who might not be holding on to old religions, but might be holding on to worship of false things. Um, they might be making things primary that shouldn't. Um, family, politics. These things can grab deep holds and roots on us that culturally we're taught should be primary. And those things are important. I'm not saying they're not. I'm just saying that the primary focus for all of us as Christians should be Christ. Number three. What is the lasting impact of our testimony? What is the lasting impact of our testimony? One of the things that I love about this story is that the Christians in Ephesus didn't leave the city. They didn't say, okay, we're Christians now, so we're all going to go to Jerusalem, and we're going to fence ourselves in, and we're going to have our Christian community, and it's going to be great. What Paul taught them was that they should be Christians who should be reaching other people, just like Jesus commanded, and furthering that community and furthering that kingdom. They had this testimony there, and the, the charge that the people brought against the Ephesian Christians, did you realize what it was? Is that they weren't buying idols. What a thing to be charged with. It wasn't that they were jerks, that they were harsh. Um, it was that they stopped buying idols. And they couldn't understand it. Their, their whole argument was that Paul says God, God's made with hands aren't God's. What a testimony to the Ephesian Christians. Somebody got their theology right. By their lives. So what is the lasting impact of our testimony? Um, what is the lasting impact of our testimony? What, what theology would people grab by looking at our lives? What would they say we worship? What would they describe a Christian as doing? Uh, this, this is a hard one for me, too. I, I think that if people watch our lives and they were to draw a theology, of who Jesus is from the way we live our lives, what would they say? Um, the question isn't whether or not people will recognize your theology or your life, uh, whether or not that will make an impact. The question is, will it be a good one? People notice. Um, if you've worked with kids, which... We do need help in children's ministry, but that's, that's not going to be an application for you. If you've worked with kids for any length of time, um, Stephanie and I were joking about this yesterday. Kids, just they just point out every flaw you have and everything wrong with you. So come work in kids' ministry. We'd love to have you. Um, they'll tell you just flat out what your life is saying to them in that moment. Wow, you're being bossy. That's rude. Um, why are you upset about that? Kids just seem to tell the truth. Uh, what is the lasting impact of our testimony? Uh, people are watching. The kids are watching. Um, the youth are watching. Um, the older people are watching. The government is probably watching. <laughs> Sorry, that was another cheap joke. I just I had to grab it. Um, but our testimony should have lasting impact. 
simply by the way we live our lives. And the Ephesians lived their lives radically following and submitted to Christ. And what the, what the town grabbed was they don't worship false gods. Amen. Jesus, if we're thinking about how should our testimony look, Jesus said this. They will know that we are his followers by our love for one another. When Jesus uh, was asked, what is the greatest commandment, he gave us a bonus. He said the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said the second is like it. It's similar. They will know how your love for the Lord is that they love their neighbor as themselves. That's how they know. That's how they know. So let's love one another well this week. Let's love our neighbor as ourselves. Let's be sacrificial, giving people that emulate and reflect our Savior. So that when people see us, they think they must worship a loving God. It must have radically changed their lives for them to be so loving and kind and sacrificial and noticing of other people. That's countercultural. My prayer is that we would all live our lives that way, not just this week but every day as a follower of Christ. Let me pray. Lord, you're so good to us. You're so kind. Uh, that's your character. That's who you are. You are loving. You are patient. You are forgiving, and we're so grateful uh, just to rest in that. Lord, this week as we go out, we, we pray that there would be no little disturbance concerning your followers, and not in the way that uh, it impacts people in frustration, but impacts people uh, and, and changes their mindset so they'd follow you. Lord, we ask that you'd expand your kingdom this week through the people in this room, through me. Uh, Lord, help us all to just faithfully submit to you and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.